Welcome to the 30th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. In the podcast description, you will find a link that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Now, I believe it's my turn to introduce today's band. You might know of in excess as sinuous rock funk exponents from the late 80s and early 90s. You might know how they came to rule the world with their infectious songs and charismatic lead singer. But did you know that back home in their native Australia, there were plenty who saw them as just another rock band who graduated from the macho 60s influenced pub rock scene that had produced the likes of ACDC? Well, here at Known Pleasures, that really gets our goat up. In excess, we're not an Oz rock band. They were a new wave band and a really good one at that. And reviewing their first four albums, as we'll do today, you'll see all of the hallmarks of post-punk influence. The ska rhythms, the quirky guitar lines, XTC-style organ stabs, and vocal yelps that would make Adam Ant proud. They didn't come from that tradition of loud bands and sweaty pubs playing Creedence Clearwater Revival covers. They were a product of the new music emanating from the UK, and they played it well. Long before the overseas success, the stadium gigs, and the impossibly charismatic lead singer, they played music that really was what you need. Now, guys, are we going to start at Davidson High School? Well, we could, or... <laughs> the reason why I say that is because my daughter goes to Davidson High School. Which is where, out of interest? It's not Lower North Shore, I guess Mid North Shore. Of Sydney. Sydney? Yeah. Can you describe that area of Sydney, like demographically? Geographically? Geographically. Is it green? Is it... Le- it's very green. There's lots of trees, but it's... Are there beaches? It's very suburban. Now, that's kind of inland mm. from the northern beaches. Mm. Well-to-do. Uh, not particularly well-to-do. Mm. It's not a great-looking high school. I guess it's pretty old. It was opened in 74. But I've walked around the high school quite a lot, and I've often wondered where Andrew Farris and Michael Hutchins met. It was somewhere there, I think, where um, Andrew asked Michael to join his band, Dr. Dolphin. The three Farris brothers, they were all in different bands, I think, and they kind of met up with all the other guys by working in these bands, and they found the bass player, Gary Gary Beers, uh, on a beach perhaps with a metal detector. <laughs> uh, Michael said, we found Gary on the beach. I think unearthed is probably the term. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Unearthed. Does anyone know why he's got two Gary names? I was going to ask you guys that. I think mm. it was something to do with a, a, a misprint or a misspelling somewhere initially, or he'd been nicknamed that. I'm not sure. I'm, there's no definitive answer that I came up mm. with, but he doesn't seem to be called that all the time. It's sometimes. It's AKA Gary Gary or just Gary. Mm. Let's go back to the school with <laughs> with the three brothers who have only two years between them, 16, 18 and 20, when In Excess proper started, between mm. the three Ferris brothers. So the parents are really knocking them out. Yes. So Michael was born in Sydney, moved to Brisbane, then moved to Hong Kong, and uh, he had briefly gone to the same school as Nastasia Kinski, apparently. In Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, yeah. And then came back to Australia and then went to LA and then came back to Sydney. So he had this extremely unusual upbringing, but it did bring him to Davidson High School Mm. and meeting 
Andrew Farris, who saved him from getting beaten up, I think. Michael had a little bit of, of a lisp, a, a bit of an English accent. Oh, he was asking for it. Yeah, if you wanted to get beaten up at an Australian high school in the 1970s, <laughs> that, that was a winning formula. I, I can tell you I didn't have either of those things and I got beaten up regularly. <laughs> so well, there were other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but they're good ones. I had pretty much both of those things. So. <laughs> the, the bullies cast a wide net at that time. <laughs> they're they're yes. very open. They were open. The Australian <laughs> school bullies. They were mm. um, accepting of geeks and nerds from all walks of life. <laughs> they were very Catholic in their bullying interests. <laughs> so it's a slightly complicated story as to how the various bands that the Farris brothers, Tim, John and Andrew played in, but they did form the Farris brothers in 1977 mm. and they were doing pretty well until the Farris family decided to move back to Perth where they had originally come from. And they were taking young John, who was 16, still at school, taking him with them. So the band located to Perth, which was just a brisk 3,300 kilometres down the road. Uh, but it was only of, for the year of 1978 when he was finishing high school, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. So they evolved in Perth as a band. I think most of the band was living with the Farris family for a while until they got kicked out and then they rented their own place. Mm. Refined their, their sound in the covers band-centric world of Perth. I read somewhere that they used to play Steely Dan songs. As a matter of fact, there's a Steely Dan song called Pretzel Logic, which um, they played well into being in excess. Okay. They did have quite a quirky new wave version of it, but... Uh... So this is 1978. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So this, this brings me to my thesis about in excess, ah, not yes. being a particularly post-punk band because their influences, as Graham just mentioned, one of them, weren't particularly punk bands or of the usual ilk, shall we say. They used to do an mm. average white band, a Steely Dan, other bands like that. So I guess I think of them more as a new wave band in that they saw an opportunity and were excited by some of the new sounds and things that were going on rather mm. than a eureka moment like a lot of bands we talk about. I think what you're saying there, can that criticism can be levelled at a lot of bands. Oh, I no, think. I'm not criticising. It's just an observation that yeah. it's, it's not like some of our bands. It's really more of a like, hey, this is kind of happening. And when you watch those early videos, they mm. certainly have taken on some of the mannerisms and, mm. and, and looks of what's happening at the time rather than we're into this, this, this is who we are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They also did incorporate some kind of post-punk type kind of covers, like watching The Detectives, Elvis Costello. Gangsters, the special song. I think so there's a big Scar influence there. Mm. I mean, yeah. I might be jumping ahead, but the, the video for their first... Uh, single, Simple Simon, uh, Andrew Farris has yes. a trench coat on and a pork pie mm, hand, pork which pie looks hat, yes. ridiculous <laughs> because he's the only one that sort of has this look. Yeah, I've obviously yeah. seen a few specials or, or Madness yeah. clips and gone, this is what what we need to do. I mean, it's quite a quirky kind of yeah, Scar-influenced yeah. song, but it's quite funny because yeah. it looks like someone's just thrown it on him. It does look as if he's playing in a different band to, yes. the, to the others. Yes. Yes, so they took on the name In Excess. And how did they arrive at that name, Patrick? Well, I believe it was inspired by Gary Morris. I think their first right? manager that mm. they had, yeah. And he, well, you probably all know this, but they, they were looking for something that sort of summed up the sound of what they were trying to do and it sounded a little bit punchy rather than the Farris brothers, a bit unimaginative. Mm. Um, and the story goes that they came up with XTC. Everybody was into them. They were a big band in Australia at the time, apparently. And uh, the IXL Jam 
brand. <laughs> so that's not as exciting. But, um, and it sort of meshed the two from XTC and I, IXL into NX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they could have been called Cotties. Or The Jam. <laughs> but that was already taken. <laughs> so should should we jump to them coming back to Sydney and their first gig is in excess? Certainly. Which was, uh, I've got here their first gig ever uh, under that name was on the Central Coast. Yeah, at on the, the first Ocean of Beach September Hotel. 1979. So well and truly into the post-punk era by mm. then or the new mm. wave era, whatever you want to call, and set back up in Sydney after having kind of run aground in Perth a little bit, did all they could do. It was around then that they were signed to Deluxe Records, I think. This Michael Browning guy who used to be the manager for ACDC. Seen them play live a lot because they were building up a bit of a following there, weren't they? They used to mm. gig a lot, apparently. Mm. Yeah. He uh, he signed a few bands to his uh, Deluxe label, but I think he had more faith in bands like The Numbers and The Jugites, uh, who were bands that... They both had good-looking female singers and uh, mm. they played music that was quite radio-friendly. And um, I think many people have thought that he was crazy to kind of pass over In Excess eventually in favour of these bands. But um, if you look at In Excess at the time, they were this ragtag bunch of misfits and ne'er-do-wells mm. who, um, who played odd new wave songs. And I don't think anyone could have predicted that they would go on to have the great success they did at this point. I don't think In Excess knew what they wanted to be at that point when you listen to some of those old songs. Mm. There's so many influences there that they're a little bit all over the shop. And they weren't a pub rock band, but they were certainly playing a lot of pubs. Mm. as was what people did. There's the story going, you could play, you know, a couple of gigs every night back in those days because there were so many venues and they would do maybe three, two, three shows a night in different places mm. around Sydney because there were so many opportunities. So you probably had to be a little bit more able to pull out different styles and win over a crowd and there's mm. the stories about them getting pretty tough crowds of bikers and different people and being able to play a rock set or a funk set or a different kind of set. So they I don't think rock set were around at that time. <laughs> <laughs> they would play a rock set cover. Yeah, they, they were able to turn their hand to, to mm. any style and mm. maybe that was a disadvantage in that they didn't have a strong sound and, and maybe image mm. to kind of back them up at that time, which, you know, was very important obviously in 78, 79. Well, starting with Simple Simon... Mm. May 1980. I can see why it wasn't a hit. I don't know if I even heard it when it came out. Did, I did, remember hearing did you? it, yeah. I remember seeing it on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Yeah, that was their first ever TV Well, appearance. he had to play it, given the title. Given the title, yeah. Mm. I should explain to our overseas listeners, what was Simon Townsend's Wonderworld? <laughs> what would you, how would you explain it? Well, I had in my notes, I'm hoping one of you guys will be able to explain what Simon Townsend's Wonderworld was like. Well, it was a TV show first and foremost. It was a a kid's TV show in the afternoon and it was like a current affairs show for kids. Mm. (laughs) Without the current affairs. Without the current affairs. Kind of Uh, like a pop culture sort of show. Yeah. With kind of magazine style segments. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Hosted by the genial Simon Townsend who spent a lot of time giggling. And they'd just released their first single called Believe It or Not, It was called Simple Simon. So we thought that we'd give them a go. Now, here's my former reporter, Hugh Piper, back then with In Excess. And it was essential TV. I certainly watched it most afternoons. And they got In Excess on the show and they mimed to Simple Simon in the middle of the Sydney cricket ground. Mm. (laughs) With um, Andrew Farris in his specials. Outfit, yes, and uh, Kirk looking like Elvis Costello, and, yeah, uh, and mm. and Michael doing his faux English accent. Was it faux? Oh, 
originally it was an underground hit in France. Oh, really? S- Simple Simon. And Michael said it was because half of the population of France is called Simon. And, uh, Do everyone, we have any stats to back that up? And everyone apparently <laughs> bought, bought the record as a birthday present for, <laughs> for their friends called Simon. Can I chuck in a quote from Andrew Farris at this point? He was asked who he thought, you know, they were like, you know, as in what sort of bands that they were kind of be thrown in with. And he said The Cure, Midnight Oil, R.E.M. and U2. And I thought that's a really interesting observation from someone within the band because they're not bands I would have said were like in excess in any way. No, no. Maybe he was just talking, you know, in spirit. Mm. I think that they came from the same scene that all the bands you're talking about, Mm. Midnight Oils and ACDCs and whoever else was born but they chose a different route and there's there's a story of them supporting um cold chisel one of the main proponents of the pub rock australian sound and then and jimmy barnes the lead singer being a bit worried how the audience would take to in excess because they were so different mm. to to um cold chisel but they were able to win those sort of audiences over so they used the pubs to their own advantage and they yeah, certainly yeah. honed their live yeah. skills they did have very energetic music and i mean a song that didn't make it onto the first album uh the b-side of Simple Simon, We Are the Vegetables. I don't know if you've if you've heard that song, but it's like a almost like a pure kind of punk song. Mm. I did kind of find it a pretty amusing song title, We Are the Vegetables. I, f- I find it hard to imagine later kind of era in excess mm. when Michael was being particularly sexy and slinky singing We Are the Vegetables. <laughs> but, yeah, but I made the set list. But I would have liked to see him try. <laughs> So um, are we going to leap forward to the first In Excess album? Why not? Which think, was called In Excess, released on the 13th of October 1980 and recorded at Trafalgar Studios, which is just over here in Annandale, or was. I actually went for a, a walk. It's quite close to where I live. It's no longer there, I don't think, the uh, no. building. And, uh, yeah, it was quite sad. There's no monument, nothing. Yeah? A little plaque? you think at least a plaque would have been <laughs> good. So this was... Co-produced by the band and a chap called Duncan Maguire. Mm. Mm. Uh, who do, is he? Do you guys know who Duncan Maguire is? He was a member of Ayers Rock. Mm. Which, I think which is, is they now which called is Uluru. Ayers <laughs> 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 Rock had a minor hit, I think, with a song called Lady Montego. Lady Montego, take my ride in your car. They were a little bit Santana-ish, right. I think. Maybe. Interesting so, choice for, to get him in as a producer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. However, I think you did a great job. Yeah, look, it's a mm. tight album. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It made number 30 in Australia. Only uh, had one single, which was Just Keep Walking, which, uh, which I really liked at the time. And in excess, mm. well, Michael Hutchins said it was our first actual song. I felt like the first song we'd written that sounded mm. like an actual song. Mm. Um, it's very heavily influenced, this album, I think, by Scar and XTC. I mm. mean... I think um, the first song, On a Bus has in the chorus has this very Barry Andrews style organ playing. Barry Andrews played keyboards for XTC. Doctor, the lyrics are like, what a waste. You know, I could have been a doctor, <laughs> I could have been a lawyer. There's a uh, song called Jumping, which has the car's clicky eighth notes that we've spoken about before. Body Language is another Scar Beat song and Newsreel Baby starts off with a Gary Newman synth riff. 
it was quite obvious to me that this band was absorbing all of this new music mm. that was coming out of the UK. And they were, I still think they were giving their own spin on it. Like, they were Australian ska bands at the time. Yeah, they were doing yeah, yeah. exactly what the specials and Madness were doing. Um, yeah, there were dedicated ska bands like um, All Nighters and Strange Tenants, yeah. for instance. Mm. But there was a big thing in Australia mm. there for, for a minute. Much mm. bigger than punk was. It seemed to kind of touch a chord with a well, lot of people yeah. that didn't like punk. <laughs> you mm. realise that when you were in high school and you learnt the saxophone, you couldn't join a punk band. True. That's why they loved it when Scar came along. <laughs> they had something to do. Can I also just mention that the first song on the first album, which is on a bus, makes reference to the term self-serve gas. Now, I can tell you in Australia, no one refers to petrol as gas. So I, I kind of think even then they had an eye on the international American market mm. by using mm. terms like that that would go go over in America. Yeah. And I, that struck me straight away listening to that, that that's just not a term that we use in Australia. No, no, no. Often, yeah. And I thought, well, you know, here they are, first song out of the gate on this album, and they're already trying making eyes at, at, the, bigger, <laughs> at the bigger picture maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of XTC and the influence they had on the band. The B-side of Just Keep Walking was a song called Scratch. Have you guys heard that? No. As soon as Michael Hutchins starts singing the verse, you'd swear it was Andy Partridge. Very Andy Partridge style guitar playing. There's a couple of odd yelps that Andy would do. It's, um, it's probably their most XTC song, and I still think that not only in excess, but I think Drums and Wires was an influence on many Australian bands. Well, you saw them play that legendary gig in Brisbane, the four heavy hitters of the scene at the time, which was the lineup was in excess first, yep. then Flowers, and Flowers, then Magazine, yep. then XTC. Yep. And now we're finally finished. <laughs> We've done the fourth band out of those. We've done the fourth band. <laughs> but, We've um, mentioned that gig four times. Um, I just wanted to mention that Learning How to Smile is, is also a great song on that album, which shows another side to them. It's a bit slower. I think it's interesting that Just Keep Walking was the choice of single. It, um, it actually came out a few weeks before the album. I heard Just Keep Walking as we all did when it was released, but I didn't hear much of the rest of that first album. And it's not remotely representative of the sound of the album. And it does give a slightly skewed idea of them because it's quite a mean sounding kind of angry song. And it's not a particularly angry album. It's quite a jaunty album. I'm not saying they were wrong to release it as a single because I, I think it's the best song on the album, but they hadn't quite found their sound, had they? It's, it's, no, it's no. really eclectic. Yeah, that's right. They were a band that were um, finding their feet, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also what worked live for them would have been the tempo jumping around numbers because Michael was prone to a bit of pogoing yeah. in his leather trousers. So, you know, that, was, <laughs> um, that was what was going over in the Australian pubs at the time. And as we, we've talked about, those those pubs did produce a lot of great music. I mean, they, they were usually packed within, to within, you know, an inch of their lives. The low ceilings, the, the heat, there was a punch-up. Mm. It was a pretty brutal place to, to kind of hone your skills and learn how to play. And what wasn't working or did work. 
It's pretty mm, apparent yeah, yeah. straight away. So the album is a product of that. The low point of the album for me is um, a song you mentioned, Jumping, where it's there's quite a bit of scar on the album. There's quite a bit of kind of power pop kind of stuff. And this is the only song that, that, that tries to shoehorn the two in, in, into the same <laughs> yeah. song. And it, it just feels to me like these two separate ideas, which obviously, you know, were generated separately by by separate members of the band. It's like, no, don't. The song written by committee. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shall we move on to uh, the second album, Underneath the Colours? Well, we should, but uh, when did The Loved One come out? Ah, yes. They released a cover version. May 1981. Yeah. So before Underneath the Colours, the second album. There was an Australian group called The Loved Ones who had a song called The Loved One, and they uh, released it as a single. But I just wanted to mention that um, on the 3rd of April, 81, I went and saw Split Ends. I think you might have gone as well Yes, in Brisbane, being supported by Mental Is Anything and In Excess. And um, this show was particularly noteworthy for me because the power went out during the Mental Is Anything part and the drummer of Mental Is Anything just played the drums for what seemed like half an hour and the other members of the band just ran around the stage. Um, <laughs> was that at Cloudland? It was a clever. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I do remember that. And we all danced, like, just to a drum beat for about half an hour. <laughs> it was a precursor to the later rave years. The rave years, that's right. <laughs> it didn't practice. matter what was going on. Any we, music would have done. Any beat was fine. We all danced to it. But I just remember In Excess uh, playing pretty much their first album. But near the end of the show, they played The Loved One, and it starts off with this, this wonderful bass line. The arrangement was was really sparse. It was very it was a very moody song, and it eventually built to this huge chorus. Oh baby, I love you so. I need you now. I want you back. I and it was certainly a precursor to the second album. Mm. It proved that they were capable of something a lot more sophisticated yeah. than uh, what they did on the first album. But instead of being a precursor to the second album, it was a precursor to the album Kick because they did a cover version. They re-recorded it on the Kick oh, album. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was on the Kick <laughs> so, album too, wasn't it? I prefer the original cover. Yeah, no, no I, I prefer the, the... I had the single, actually. I thought mm. it was a great song. It got to number 18, which was which was pretty impressive. So they were definitely That's right. It was their, the first, their first top 20 hit. Mm. And it was produced by Richard Clapton. And who went gonna, on to? We're going to have to explain who Richard Clapton is. No relation to Eric Clapton. No. He was, well, would you say, a bit of a rock star from the 70s mm. in Australia, spent a lot of time with girls on avenues. Um, yeah. He, and getting into deep water. He, I don't know any of his other songs. <laughs> he had one particularly mega hit in Australia, which was uh, Girls on the Avenue. Girls on the And again, with the Ayers Rock guy producing the first album and Richard Clapton producing the second album, you know, they were not obvious choices no. for a post-punk band. Maybe there weren't many other choices around. Mm. This was released October 81, so it's still early days. Mm. 
the recording of the album was apparently quite interesting. Richard Clapton, one quote from him was, um, it was wild. Michael came in tripping all the time, wearing this crushed purple velvet cape like he was a prince. Like that he was a prince what, or that, a prince. Like he was a prince. <laughs> <laughs> like he was a prince. <laughs> so that's, that's my <laughs> attempt at an Italian accent. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> no, that was, that was well, very we, convincing. We should point out that the album's called Underneath the Colours. We didn't mention that. I did, but that was about 10 minutes ago. Okay. When, I, when, I, when I thought we were going to talk about it, so you'll <laughs> cut that out. It had three singles on it. Three mm-hmm. times as many as the first album. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. Stay Young, Underneath the Colours was released in New Zealand. Still going to count that. And Night of Rebellion. It shows definite growth, this album, I mm. think. Mm. The title track, I love. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a really nice song. I think they were listening to some different things. Um, Gary... Gary, 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 Gary Beers, <laughs> the bass player, was listening to a lot of Japan, apparently. Mm. And there's a track on called Fair Weather Ahead, which features a bit of fretless bass. And uh, he was he was a big Mick Khan fan, by oh, all nice. accounts. So that's probably out of the... Uh, out of the region, what the others were listening to, anyway, I'd say. And it also finished with quite a nice ballad called Just to Learn Again. Yeah, that's a great song. Which I really like mm. too. There's an interesting thing around this time in, in, in 81 in Australia. Patrick, you came up with a reader's poll in 1981 from a magazine called Roadrunner. Yep. I believe. It featured. You know, various, you know, poll, best keyboard player, best singer, best album, all this. Like a list of top five. List of top fives for the year. And um, I don't know when it was released, but there was virtually no In Excess in it. And I thought it was interesting that mm. In Excess were kind of not popular in that scene because this was a kind of an alternative magazine. Mm. And the bands that were featured didn't have anywhere near the, like the success In Excess had, but they were kind of not cool. Or yeah, something. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to drive at. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, they hadn't quite established their their identity, I think, because mm. and the first single from underneath the colours, "Stay Young." Was not the kind of hard edged rock song like the previous mm. two singles. It was quite kind of brooding synth pop, a little bit like Flowers or Ice House at mm. times, except Flowers at that time were massive in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think they came 10th in that reader's poll in the, the list of bands, but none of the instrumentalists in the band made the top fives, I don't for think instance, Michael as in like best singer was, or best bass yeah, player or whatever. Yeah. I mean, for an album that reached number 15, I just think the Australian perception of them, and this is my memory of it maybe and I could be biased, was that they were always trying a little bit too hard for pop success. Coming out of the new wave alternative scene, that was seemed that was seen as uncool mm. and not something you wanted to do. And maybe that's the difference between them being a Sydney band versus a Melbourne band because the Melbourne bands were very cool. And if you think of the two biggest bands produced out of this period in Australia from then was the Birthday Party out of Melbourne, who are unbelievably cool, and Nick Cave still is to this day, yeah. and then In Excess, who kind of never were cool but went on to much greater success. And I think it's just yeah. an interesting comparison between Sydney and Melbourne and yeah. the sorts of bands that the two cities produced. The kind of cliche about Sydney being hedonistic and sunny and Melbourne being rainy and brooding. None of which is true. Is completely true, as, <laughs> as we know. As we know. 
as someone who's lived in both cities, I can I can vouch for the sunnier side of my nature being pretty much omnipresent in Sydney. You're always oh, really? so cheery here. Because mm. you always virtually had your head in a noose every time I saw you're, you. You're a new man, I know it was a thing, but you know, <laughs> I just I'd, I'd come over and Patrick would be there on the chair again, you know, noose around. He'd say, come on, Patty. <laughs> it was the 80s. <laughs> it was the 80s. <laughs> Um, uh, what do we think of Underneath the Colours, Graham? I love it, but I was just going to say that Stay Young, I thought, was an unusual single. The verses were quite commercial, but that chorus is very strange to me. Just that, ah, that bit mm. seems to come out of left field, and it, it's like the first two lines are very different to the next two lines. And then it, it kind of resolves nicely, but I remember at the time thinking, what an unusual chorus for a, a pop song. Mm. But it did well for them. I loved it when it came out. It had mm. that kind of synthy quality that particularly appealed to me. 21 in Australia, is that right? Mm, Just so. pulling that out of the thin mm. yeah. <laughs> It is an album that's absolutely overflowing with ideas, maybe too many ideas. It doesn't gel very well, I don't think. Like It kind of lurches from one kind of song to another without necessarily there being strong links between them. I mean, the song Follow, for instance, sounds quite Joy Division-ish. Barbarian has a bit of killing joke. Well, Barbarian sounds like what's going to come later on the swing and kick, that mm. riff. Sounds a little bit like um, one of their hit singles, da, 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 and Barbarian is a similar mm, riff. So it's sort mm. of pointing the way to where they'll go in a couple of years, maybe. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Good song. So are we heading to Shabu Shabar? October 1982. I think I think we should. I'm hoping we are because for my money, In Excess were never better than this album. Wow, big call. Big call for Legions me. of In Excess fans around the world mm. are going to have issue with that, Graham. Mm. It's bookended by two classic In Excess songs in The One Thing and Don't Change. And when I look down the list of songs from To Look At You, um, Soul Mistake, Jan Song, and Black and White, it's just one great song. Spy of Love. After another, yeah, it's another Love Spy of Love. Mm. It's. Um, I think they might have been moving away from New Wave at this point to more traditional songwriting, but, you know, I, I think in context with the rest of the world, I think a lot of bands were at this point. You know, XTC had abandoned their quirkiness and gone into um, more traditional songs. Oh, it was, it was 82. A lot, a lot had happened yeah. in that time. And this was produced by Mark Opitz, who was more of a rock producer, had worked with maybe ACDC and other bands like that, you yeah. know, getting a big rock sound. Yeah. I think this is what NXS wanted. And this was their first sort of success in America. I think the first time they ever toured America was, was on the back of this album. It was a hit for them in Australia. It hit number five and it hit number 46 in the US. Yeah, um, well, I think the one thing got to number 30. Which is pretty interesting. On the back of a very dynamic sort of video, and this was the beginnings of MTV possibly mm, starting. Yep, yep. Um, it looked great, and you also had sort of the college radio thing in the US picking up on them and kind of giving them a, a bit of a yep. push. I think America was ready for some new wave by about 1982. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they were coming across at this it. It takes. It did take a long time in America for these things to kind of happen. Yeah. But I always remember seeing live footage, and you guys might remember this, of them playing in San Diego or something. And it was a big thing on Countdown, the TV rock show here, where they showed three or four In Excess songs, you know, from this successful tour In Excess are doing in America. And I just remember seeing the clip, the footage, sorry, of them playing maybe three or four songs from this album and thinking, wow, they've really gone yeah, rock yeah, star. Yeah. I remember, remember that. that. Michael Hutchins had gone from kind of bouncing around and new wavy to full on rock god yeah. style. And they had turned into a full on yeah, rock yeah, band. Yeah. I just remember thinking they'd gone American.
you saying they sold out? I kind of, I am kind of saying that in a way, and and this doesn't reflect very well on me, but <laughs> I I remember having a conversation with Kathy McQuaid, who was the bass oh player. Oh my god, I was going to mention this in Deck Chairs Overboard, and I was kind of being a bit like, ah, oh, so what do you think of In Excess? You know. The, you know, sold out, and she was like, "No way, good on them. This is great." You know, yeah, I'm really, and, I, she... and I felt really chastened and kind of like, "Yeah, that's what I was going to say," because <laughs> I was, you know, trying to be cool about it. I was, I... Oh wow, that's amazing you mentioned that because I was there. I was. Were you eavesdropping was, again was, on my conversation? I was. That's weird because we were in a room on our own. So I don't know <laughs> where you were, Graham. Were you hiding in the right? cupboard again? It was like at. QIT. It was no, it was at the uh, yeah the gig at QIT. Gig I think Deck Chairs must have been playing, and we, yeah. and we were friends with them. And Speaking, I just having a chat. So this was in 1983. It. You had this conversation. It would have been around then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would have been. Yeah. Well, it was then. Yeah, oh. Graham was there. He remembers. That's right. I was in the next room listening <laughs> with a glass to the wall. Speaking of Kathy McQuaid, I'm glad you brought her up. For those uh, who don't know, Kathy played. Bass. I did mention that earlier. Yeah. Uh, I just want to reiterate that Kathy McQuaid was the bass player. Did she play bass? I'm joking. In Deck Chairs Overboard? <laughs> what was the name of the band again? <laughs> they were called Deck Chairs Overboard. You put a doubt in my mind. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. And they were great. Deck they were Chairs awesome. They are one of the best Australian mm. bands ever, and I'd love to do a podcast on them. For um, our international listeners, Deck Chairs Overboard featured the drummer Paul Hester. Yes. Who became a part of Crowded House. He did indeed. Sadly, is uh, no Which longer with us. Which ties in well with the subject of this podcast on split ends. That's right. Yes, yes, we've mentioned split ends. <laughs> but anyway, uh, oh, the, the Kathy McQuaid thing. The B side of the one thing was a song called Space Shuttle. Have you guys heard that? No. It's quite an electronic song. It's very much of its time, but I, I re- really love it. But the chorus is just sung by a female vocalist, and on the single, it just says "Thanks to Kathy" with a C. And I don't know who that is, but it I was just well wondering her. whether it was Kathy McQuaid. You know what? I don't know, but it could well be. Unless it was, I don't know, Kathy Bates, the actress. Could be. <laughs> or maybe it was Kathy Freeman, 17 years before her gold medal win at the Sydney Olympics. But anyway, this, this song showed that they were capable of experimenting on occasion. Yeah. Even though it kind of got relegated to a B-side. Well, this album was a, a real attempt cutting through I think this is the culmination of the previous you know three or four years Mm. well it does actually for the first time sound like a band that knows what it's trying to do Mm. and for such a diverse collection of songs I mean black and white is quite funky to look at you is quite moody and Mm. synthesized it does feel like a unified album and John Farris said, In Excess was a mix of all sorts of styles and influences from Motown to disco and punk. Somehow Mark Opitz, the producer, integrated all that. Shabu Shubar is an indication of how clever he is. It does feel like a really cleverly produced Mm. album Mm. to me. And speaking of Shabu Shubar, what do you think of that as a title? Is it a There is a story behind the title. I did hear something that Tim Ferriss was chanting that at the end of the song. I think it was just a kind of a catch-all phrase that they would use within the band for something or other, like, you know, bing, bang, let's go. They'd say shabu shabar or something like um, that. Patrick, I think you might have a a point of view or an opinion on the actual album covers. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think NXS's album covers were great. Well, the four albums we're covering. I can't think of a Peter Saville type legendary album yeah. cover designer in Australia around that time. And it was not a great collection of album covers, I don't think. 
But I think that, that that speaks to the fact that Australian bands didn't have a strong image either. Mm, I mean, yeah, yeah, the English yeah. bands, some would say to their detriment, you know, had a very strong idea of what they wanted to be yeah, presented yeah. like and how it was super yeah. important that the cover of the Joy Division albums looked the way that they did, mm, whereas... Yeah. In Australia, as we know, that's never been particularly important how the bands dressed or looked or were presented. No, they don't yeah, think. certainly less important. Yeah. Regarding Shabu Shubar, Gary Gary Beers did say Does years later. Is in here? Gary Gary Beers <laughs> did say years later regarding that title. Sounds like we used to smoke a lot of pot back in those days. You would probably want to be relatively high to choose Shabu <laughs> To think that's Shabu. a good idea. I think this is the first time that we really saw Michael Hutchins, the rock star, and mm. without him, the band would never have gone on to the success that mm. they did because seeing footage of him and looking back at old documentaries and, and so on, you really get a sense of how great a front man he was and how charming and he really found his groove and his mm. footing on this album I think his vocals are great I mean he's yeah. a great singer had a great yeah, voice yeah. but he was a great front man mm. but he seemed to have a way of turning that on I mean I met him a couple of times in various gigs and places around and he was just really quiet and unassuming mm. not at all like you'd expect him to be and had every right to be so around that time yeah mm. yeah um he, he was going out with a girl in a band called Sandy and the Sunsets, a Japanese band, and they played a couple of gigs on the Gold Coast that we supported them at. And he was at both of those gigs. Huh? And um, and I had a chat to him there. And I also chatted to him once in a pub in North Sydney when he stepped on my foot <laughs> and kind of apologised. And I was like, well, don't let it happen again. I'll, you know, let it go this time. We had a bit of a joke about it. You know, he could have told me to whatever and he didn't he was just very very mellow mm, low-key yeah, guy yeah. and then he gets on stage and he turns into like what Mick Jagger used to yeah. be or something like yeah, a, yeah. the quintessential front man of a great band and yeah. I think on this album is where you really see him mm. fulfilling that role and of course he went on to greater heights but this is the first time you really see that I think yeah I would say about this album in terms of the musicianship that it amazes me that a band of six people is capable of producing such a well-structured, disciplined, you know, there's no overplaying. Every little element of the album makes sense mm. and you don't get a sense of, of any ego being involved and it does feel like it wasn't, it, you never think, gee, that, that song's kind of overloaded with, with instruments. It is just disciplined all the way through and, and I think that's a real hallmark of the In Excess sound. Mm. that it sounds like it could be a three- or a four-piece band. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it, well, I think the production has a lot to do with that. Mm. I think it, Marco Pitts was very experienced. I mean, once again, we're talking about all the, the pub rock scene, but he had produced just about every name out of that scene, the Angels, yeah, Cold yeah. Chisel, yep. the Hitmen, for example, yeah, Australian yeah. Crawl, Divinals. The Reels as well, actually, their first album. The Hitmen, who ironically never had his. No, no, <laughs> the ironically named Hitmen. But, yeah, he gave them a power and a punch and probably a concise sound that, that, that they needed mm. to cut through and really successful album. I bought this album. I still think it's great. When you listen to it, it's chock-a-block with hits. Yeah, yeah And deservedly yeah. Um, got them over in America, got some got some headway in America. Yeah. As I said, it gets my vote. As best of the four? Best of the four. Okay. Did you I, have something to say about the playing on this album, Paddy, or was that it? Uh, yeah. That was it. That's, oh, okay. That's more or less it, yeah. Right. Uh, I bought the Don't Change single. I thought it was fantastic. And uh, Bruce Springsteen did a cover of it uh, in 2014 in Australia mm. and he gave it the full Springsteen treatment. That's how far the song had reached, even though it wasn't a hit outside of Australia. But mm. for a long time, I think In Excess played Don't Change as their final song of gigs. And to do that with a non-hit, 
you know, like around the world, it was their last song. So, mm. yeah, it was it but was it, it was yeah. a real turning point for them. I think. Mm. I think that in excess, I don't think they were great songwriters, but they wrote great in excess songs. Mm. And nice I'd, qualification. I, I never thought that their songs would be covered or become standards and become covered later on, with the exception of Don't Change. And I think that was a really well-crafted song, and I can imagine other people doing versions of that as Bruce Springsteen did. Did we mention the chart position of Shabu Shabu, number yeah, five yeah. In, in Australia? And uh, I saw In Excess uh, in 1983, around this era, at Festival Hall in Melbourne, where the Beatles played in 1964. <laughs> um, Did you see them as well? No, <laughs> no I failed to. Um, the ticket cost $3.90. And the reason I know that is because I've still got the ticket. Oh. And, and anybody um, that knows Patrick won't be surprised. <laughs> to <laughs> so he know still that. has the ticket. Yes, and yeah. that was, they were supported by Real Life and Machinations. Ooh. And it was an underage gig, it was an afternoon gig. And they were already kind of feeling like this huge pop band in Australia. It's difficult to communicate to non Australians just how big In Excess were becoming by mm. then. Yeah. So the album after Shabu Shabu, which we're about to get to, was obviously an even bigger breakthrough for them. But yeah, Shabu Shabu, they were becoming about as big as you can get in Australia. I think there was a sense within Excess, and I'm only basing this on my own memories, that we in Australia had finally found a band out of the post punk new wave scene that could actually amount to something in an international sense. Mm. The other bands, Never seemed to make it, you know, the bands we loved or, or worshipped at the time would go to London and come back with their tails between their legs yeah, yeah. or just no one was interested. But these guys were so determined and so driven to achieve this, which they obviously had to be to, to get to where they did, that this felt like they could do it. They yeah, had all yeah. the ingredients and this album really crystallised that for me at the time. I remember thinking, yeah, they could go on to big things, yeah. which I feel the next album is the real signpost towards that future success. Mm. The swing in that. Well, well, I suppose the, the original Sin single yeah. is, is a Predates little bit separate. That album, yeah. little bit well, separate. it is separate in that the original Sin was produced by Nile Rogers of Chic, which was interesting in itself. And he had seen them play uh, a gig in the States, I think a New Wave Festival or something like that, uh, with a bunch of other bands of mm. the day maybe even The Clash, I think, and had been blown away by their, by their live performance and, and the drumming, particularly John Farris, and he felt like he could do something with them. Yeah. And so yeah. he had kind of somehow facilitated that and got in touch with them and the rest is history because it's a great song, well produced, and it was kind of a big breakthrough for them in terms of credibility, I think, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Nile Rogers, as well as being in Chic, had recorded... Let's Dance with Bowie mm. at the start of that same year. So. And Madonna, yeah. like a virgin. <laughs> so he was pretty much the hottest producer in the world, mm. working with, let's face it, a pretty much unknown Australian band yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, even roped in Daryl Hall for some backing vocals, Graham. Yes, I saw that. I tried to isolate the backing vocals just to try and hear Daryl Hall's voice. And I think you can hear it here in the second part of this chorus. Have a listen. Dream on white boy. Oh, 
<laughs> See, you can just hear it. I remember at the time, like the song got to number one in Australia, and I remember thinking this song is going to be huge worldwide because it just sounded like an international top ten hit to me. Mm. But it stalled at number fifty-eight in the US. I think it might have. It was big in a few European countries. I think. Yeah, I think it reached number one in France and a few but other did, countries. But didn't it stall in America because of the lyrics? Well, that's what they say. I, I don't know whether yeah. that's in retrospect or not. Mm. Whether the the white stations wouldn't touch it and the black stations wouldn't touch it because of the black boy, white girl, you know, interracial relationship thing. Mm. Whether that was just conveniently tagged on later, like like managers and record companies will do to say this is the why it wasn't a hit, or whether it just fell through the cracks, wasn't mm. America wasn't ready for it at the time. I mean, there's talk about well, we'll talk about this album, but this album was a little bit too far ahead of itself at the time, mm. The Swing, April 84. It sounded like the future when I heard it. Yeah. I remember thinking this is as good as anything out there at the moment. Yeah. But apparently some of, the rec- some of the record companies around the world, in fact, all of them rejected it out of hand and said it it was rubbish. Uh, but so- getting back to Original Sin. Yes. Um, I had a really funny joke about Original Simon being misprinted on the French labels. <laughs> And that that's why it was big in France. But so what's the funny part? <laughs> when are you going to tell the joke? Yeah, I thought it was going to be a bit laboured, so I thought, no, I won't mention that on the podcast. Oh, sorry, Patrick, that was a good gag. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be a bit more forceful, I think. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, Glad I, I waited. Yeah. There are different stories about the white boy, black girl kind of controversy about the lyrics. Niall Rogers, in fact, said that it was originally white boy, white girl, and that Niall had suggested changing it. He said, why not make it black boy, white girl? I come from an interracial couple. I think the song would have been bigger in the US had I not talked them into changing the lyrics. Well, oh, see, that few, contradicts few what Michael Hutchins says. Yeah, so there are kind of conflicting stories about why the song sank like a stone and people were, were queuing up to take responsibility. Michael said he wrote those lyrics deliberately after going past a park in New York mm, and seeing white mm. kids and black kids playing together and saying, you know, if only that was the way it was when they grew up. And yeah. There's no reason for that not to be the case. So yeah. who knows the, the true story? It wasn't particularly a hit and it sort of set them backwards in America, according to... Yeah, the record yeah, companies yeah. anyway. And I think it's a great song regardless. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And if we're about to go to the swing, Mark Opitz, he said, when we finished making Shabu Shuba, someone gave me a copy of Midnight Oil's 10 to 1 album. I listened to it and declared this has got to be the best Australian album I've ever heard. Suddenly they, Midnight Oil, weren't sounding like a punk band, they sounded like a unique band. 10 to 1 was produced by Nick Launay. I knew where In Excess were going to go for their next album. So... What do you guys think of Nick Launay's production on well, this? Well, we've spoken about Nick Launay extensively mm. on this podcast because he seems to have a finger in a bunch of things. He's but he worked had, with bands like? Well, Gang of Four, Killing Joke, Public Image, all the bands that you might want to go mm, back and listen yeah. to the podcast that we've done on them. But he features a lot throughout, and we, we should do a podcast just on him alone, I think, one mm. day. And but he was so young as well. He was very young. Early but he, 20s. But he did the Midnight All album, then he did the Models, Pleasure of Your Company, before he did the yeah. NXS album. Yeah. So he, there was some form. This is what I was going to say to you guys, because I know you guys have given um, short shrift to uh, the Models album, Pleasure of Your Company, before. I think a song like Melting in the Sun, you could lift off this album. And just drop it right in the middle of Pleasure of Your Company and it would sit perfectly. Like the drum sounds are identical. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, it's his production style, so yeah. you'd you, you expect that. But um, I guess I'm saying I liked. 
pleasure of your company and I like this one. Look, I think the album hasn't aged that badly. I listened to it again the other day and it sounds crisp and clean. There's a lot of ideas. There's not too much Rotatom action and stuff in there to, to sort of make it very, very 80s. It did feature heavily the DX7 synth. Yes, which it just came out. Just come mm. out and they would have had one of the first ones in 83. Uh, it also features a lot of Japan sounding stuff. Um, mm. I think it's a pivotal album, and I'm going to use a term that the kids use and say it's peak in excess. Peak in excess? For me, this album, mm. a song like I Send a Message is as good a, an electro song as the Human League ever did or anybody. It's so clean and so punchy, and if you put that on a dance floor, it still would sound yeah, amazing. Yeah. I just remember hearing the singles from this album and just was blown away by the whole album. I thought it was a quantum leap yeah, for yeah, them yeah. and, again, points to where they're going to go. It wasn't especially huge internationally. Number no, one in not. Australia, 52 yeah, well in America. Here. Yeah, it did very well here. But it was such a departure from the guitar sounds, the heavy mm. guitar sounds of before, uh, the previous uh, yeah, year, yeah. two years before. It was so mannered, very... Precise. It was very unemotional album, but just absolutely fantastically constructed. Mm. Nick Lorne talked about how disciplined the playing was. For instance, he said it wasn't about playing the guitar freely. Everything was very controlled. And if you listen to the solo, guitar solo in in I Send a Message, for instance, you can tell that uh, Timmy is kind of, if he was following his instincts, he'd be really letting rip, but he's just... Holding back. Yeah, it's yeah. A, there's a tightness and a tension to the whole album. Mm. Um, it's experimental to me, but it yeah. has songs. Like Johnson's Aeroplane is a great song. That's actually my favourite in excess song. Johnson's yeah, that is a fantastic song. And it's apparently one of Kirk's favourites, if not his favourite album, of all of their albums. Yeah, okay. So that's yep. an interesting angle on it. Yep. Um, as I said, to me, it's their best album. I, I still yeah. could listen to it now, and I think it's it's incredible. And it was gutsy for them to do yeah. that. And it was the right thing to do in April 1984. Yeah. yeah. And pretty much every song is a really good song mm. in, it, in its own right. And the production of it, we hadn't quite got to the mega gated reverb drums and the, the horrible cliches of mid-'80s music, chart mm. music. It was fresh. It felt new. It was the best elements of, of the electronic stuff, elements of kind of craft work at times. Mm. And they still sounded like a rock band in a way, but like a futuristic yeah. rock band. It was like the album was recorded on Mars almost. You know, but then you still had Michael Hutchins doing his thing yeah, on top yeah, of that yeah. as well. So the whole package was there mm. for me. I just remember playing it yeah, in yeah. a friend's car on a good stereo and just being blown away by the quality. Mm. I had not heard anything apart from 10 to 1, that sort of sounded anything like it. Mm. Very my, futuristic. My housemate in my first share house bought the album and we were a very, very serious, intense Melbourne music household. <laughs> so we were listening to a lot of The Cure and Echo and the Bunnymen and New Order and like proper sort of you know serious, intense, slightly melancholy Doomy. bands. Yeah. Uh, David Sylvian, Brill Brilliant Trees was big that year but mm. the swing was so irresistible that mm. it was on high rotation even in 
that household. So it actually made you dance at some point, didn't it? I don't remember tapping any toes. <laughs> there was a shuffle. There was a mild shuffle. A mild shuffle. We didn't tap toes. We didn't smile. <laughs> but we but. enjoyed it thoroughly nonetheless. Good. I'd like to talk just for a moment about Burn For You. Mm. On the surface, it's, it's like one of Inexcess's more lightweight pop songs. This it? was the third single, am I right? It was the third single, right. yeah. Okay. But if you dig down, it's one of the most unusual songs in both chord progression and arrangement. Um, the first verse is in the key of G. It's no use pretending. And then it jumps up to an A for the chorus. Then it leads into the key of D in the second verse. So the first verse and the second verse, the melodies are the same, but they're actually different chords they're playing. And then there's a moment in the second verse where they seem to throw a whole series of chords at the wall, hoping that they'll stick. And then it eventually takes them back to G. So it's, it's really a triumph of arrangement in that in the song, everyone has a has their go in the sunshine. So what, what you were mm. talking about before, there'll be a little guitar bit, then the bass player will play a bit, then the keyboard player will hit a chord. No one's playing over each other. There's lots of hooks and melodies, but at some point it kind of feels like the band are like making it up as they go along. And I think it's amazing that such an unorthodox song was A, was released as a single, and B, became yeah, so successful. Yeah. It, it reached number three. And I love Burn For You, I think it's a great song. But if, if you sit down and listen to it, it's the most bizarre, put-together song I've ever heard. They disguise those eccentricities pretty well because I certainly wouldn't have thought of the verses as you know being, as being unconventional. In different keys. Because it's just a really snappy song. As a pop song that could have been a lot more simpler things they could have done. Mm, mm. But they actually made it quite complicated. Mm. Nick Lorne, I did say that um, they were trying to make Remain in Light, mm. as in you know, the Talking Heads album. It doesn't remind me of Remain in Light in no, the slightest. Not on the slightest. <laughs> so, <laughs> Maybe he just meant in, in a groundbreaking sense, I mm. don't know, to do something that people would put down as a landmark. Yeah, And it but, certainly is in one sense of that. But Remain in Light has a kind of a fundamental organicness mm. and the swing just is the opposite of organic. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of a... But I can't imagine Nick Lornay in those days making Romanian Light in that way. No, it's no, just, that's just right. wasn't what he did. That's right. Everything was heavily produced and mannered and done mm. in a particular mm. way, but no less successful for that. Nick did say that in terms of being as good as Human League and so on, that Human League happened to be at the Manor studio one day while In Excess were recording The Swing and they heard I Send a Message, and this is by some unknown band, and they were totally blown away Human League. And Nick said In Excess was playing music as catchy as those bands, but they were still this rock band who could really play their instruments. That is a really striking thing about it. It doesn't sound like two people in a studio making an album. It does feel like six people, albeit, you know, doing a very highly stylized and highly kind of controlled album. This is where we leave the NXS story, which is an interesting time to leave it because it's really the jumping off point for their major international success, which, success is, yeah. which is yet to come because the albums after this... Um, which are the three Chris Thomas? I think Chris Thomas did Listen Like Thieves, Kick and X. And yes. then Mark Opitz 
came in for Welcome to Wherever You Are. But the three big albums that most people would know them for, which mm. they're international, they're English success, American success, yeah, were, yeah. They, were the ones that after this. I actually think what they did later on was interesting. Mm. Like it's not like they all of a sudden became foreigner or something like that. They, they did something that was quite unique. I guess it's, we've said this before. We were young at the time. Maybe these albums just meant more to us at the time because you know how you think about music when you're a teenager. Well, and we saw them play live. I probably saw them two or three times yeah, in yeah. these couple of years you saw well, them. I, I saw In Excess at a festival in Noosa in January 84 and again January 85. And I remember January 85 when I saw them, they were all wearing Dreiser bones. And in January? Yeah. In January. Wow, would have been pretty hot. In Noosa. Yeah, in Noosa. Noosa is like a beach town north of Brisbane and they had a big light show I think Jenny Morris was singing back up and I remember seeing them and thinking these guys are probably going to be really big I didn't have the foresight to, to see exactly how big they were going to become but I just remember seeing them thinking yeah that this is probably the biggest band Australia has at the moment mm. well I think somewhere I read there the the second largest selling Australian act after ACDC worldwide mm. which mm. which I would probably not argue with. I think the interesting thing I wanted to say, I don't know whether you guys want to finish on anything, but they were born of a particular scene and time in Australia and they really tapped into something, but they kind of left that behind mm. pretty quickly, the pub rock scene. And as Graham pointed yeah. out, they're not a pub rock band, but they're of that scene. They came from the pub, so the sound and their energy, their live show was born from there. But mm. they took it somewhere else and they were fortunate enough to have an exceptional front man yeah, and singer yeah out the front of what they were doing, which led them on to even greater success than they probably could have ever imagined. But and it's interesting to see where they started and the contemporaries that they were playing with, the supporting or, or playing around, and no one mm. achieved anything like they did, as I said, out of the Australian acts of, the, of that period. There's only the birthday party and in excess that I can think of that had anything like mm. an international impact, not sales, but impact. Yeah, and yeah. there's been no one since that's gone anywhere near them. And I think they need to be celebrated for that and certainly not dismissed as, as you say, Graham, as some pub rock tribute act or something because they were far, far more interesting than that and had far more deserving of our attention than any of those other bands. Well, I'm frustrated by the fact that history seems to record in excess as this fairly straight up and down, very, very talented, but... A funk rock kind of band who I really liked the kick album and songs from from X and, and Welcome to Wherever You Are and, and so on. But I didn't feel like it was peak in excess, as you say, and I'm frustrated by the fact that, that history has put them into such a narrow box. And Michael Hutchinson's tabloid fate um, and his tragic death has overshadowed what to me is most important about In Excess, which is their early albums, which were so inventive and so creative and musically ambitious. And they were, by 1984, they were already one of the most successful bands in Australian history and, and they hadn't even really got started. Mm-hmm. 